Making, a podcast by Bonsai Creative that helps creatives in film get where they're going faster by sharing the advice, knowledge, and insights of professional creatives across the film industry. I'm your host, Chris Barkley. Hi, my name is Chris Haley, and I am my at least my day job is director of the study of the legacy of slavery in Maryland at the Maryland State Archives. And I'm also a writer and an actor and a filmmaker. I think one of the things that I've I've have recently done is I've just published a book called Fists and Rainbow, which came out on April 16th, which is available on Amazon and also in the, the Taj Mahal Review out of India. It's published by Cyberwit.net. Another book that I'm coming out with probably in the fall, I'm still in the final phases of putting in a poem or taking out a poem or, and then rearranging the order in which they are in is called My Mind Has Many Windows. So hopefully that will come out at the end uh, or in the fall of this year. Uh, and also Fits of, Fists and Rainbows, which we'll, which we'll be talking about at some point today. For its month of April into May, I'd say for half of that month, if not three weeks of that month, it was the number one rated poetry book in African poetry. And it, it, I got the really great banner sign. It said number one. And then every now and then it would go down to number three or number four. Then it would pop back up to number one. So it was, it was really kind of an amazing thing to see that with something that you created be on a number one list. Even though it wasn't New York Times, it's Amazon. But we know Amazon has made Jeff Bezos one of the next trillionaires. So it's probably not a bad place, bad place to be. Not at all. And I guess we'll have to have you back on in the fall to talk about <laughs> uh, my mind has many windows and just for uh, just to keep everything congruent. Let me give you exactly. the formal introduction. Uh, Chris Haley, welcome back to the make it podcast. Thank you very much. <laughs> it's my pleasure. And I'm excited to have this conversation. Mm-hmm. I, I read your book. I read Fists. Well, let me give you, let me give the audience the full title okay, of this sure. book of poetry. That's true. That's right. Fists and Rainbows with One Fist in the Air and Hala. Mm-hmm. And I read the entire thing. Your writing style you, you, that you go to on several of the early points for sure, but throughout the book where you pay off a rhyme scheme, usually something along the lines of four to eight syllables you pay that off five lines down. It's, it's really brilliant, really great, great payoff. And you realize it after the fact, after you've read it, like what, why did that rhyme? I don't know why that rhymed. Why did that rhyme? Mind? <laughs> yeah. There were no rhyming lines there. It, it rhymed. So I really thought that was great. And two poems jumped out at me, but like I said, all of them, the whole thing is great. And it's a quick read. And I would like to read one of them to the audience, if that's okay with you. That's fine. You read so well when you did last time. I thought, okay, that's how it sounds. Okay. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. So this one stood out to me and I'll tell you why. So the name of the poem is I remember the billboard. And for those that get the book again, fists and rainbows, it'll be on page 42, but this one stood out to me because 
in Nashville up until very, very recently on a major interstate uh, in the city going towards going south. There is there was a probably a 50 foot statue of Nathan Bedford Forrest. And not the old one that regretted being racist or starting the KKK, but the young one that was that was on a horse and fighting and, you know. Yeah, yeah, right, right. And then around him is this just layout of all the sort of Confederate flags and like like kind of encircling the horse. Wow. So it's this giant monument right off the interstate. It's probably the most popular billboard in the city without being a billboard. Wow. It's a, a massive, it's a massive, massive statue. And it had been there for decades. Mm-hmm. Finally, the guy died. I think uh, they were able to get, you know, his family didn't like it or something. I can't remember what happened to get the statue down. It was always being vandalized. <laughs> right. As you could imagine, but it's on private yeah. property. A guy had in a, and, and the property butted up against the, the this giant interstate. Wow. I 65. So, I immediately thought about this because anytime we pass that statue, Chris, as I'm saying, we, as my family, or we, as black people pass that statue, I thought to myself, or I was forced to think to myself, what, who is this for? Right. Is it to, is it to warn me or to provide pride to them? Mm -hmm. Is it both? And so anyway, preamble, That was long, but let's read this thing. I remember the billboard by Chris Haley. I remember the billboard, the man aloft a horse riding high in the sky, a giant hunting for prey, staring as we drove by dark holes shielded his eyes as we crossed state lines, painted words shouted, you're now entering clan country. In the back seat, I muffled a cry. Though to some you were a welcome, to a transfixed child you were a horrid sight. I'm sure several cheered your message. It was this black boy you meant to fright. I might never know when you were built. I vaguely recall where you stood but I'll remember until the day I die the billboard of the man with a hood. <laughs> what's, what's, can, do you know where you saw this? Is it really, is it true that you can't remember? Do you know what state lines it was? <clears throat> I have looked, I have looked many a time I'd say, because I often drive just to North Carolina mm-hmm. Uh, not so much in South Carolina, a couple of times in South Carolina, but I have, and usually it's on 95 or to go to Augusta, Georgia, because that's where my mother's family lived. Mm-hmm. So we would, on our summer vacations, we literally would go down 95 to visit my mother's mother and her grandparents in Augusta. And we were always take 95. And I don't remember, and it was always in August. Mm-hmm. Or might be, or might be Christmas time. One of those two times a year, we would visit and go that way. And I was always sitting. I mean, this is how this, this the memory remember memory recalls. In our car, there's just the four of us: my mother, my father, my brother, myself. 
I always sat on the passenger side. My brother always sat behind my father. So he's on the driver's side. So going south from Maryland, from D.C., I was always on this passenger side. So I would see the signs going south on 95. Going north, I could see signs too. But this was on the south side. So like my brother, I don't think he has a memory of this at all. (laughs) I I, I mentioned it to him the the other day, and, and he doesn't. He believes it, but he doesn't have a memory of it. Whereas I remember it. And, and I, I don't remember exactly when I started being, I'd say, frightened, concerned, worried, bewildered by it. But I knew there, there was a time when I always felt it wasn't, a good thing that it was there. Yeah. <laughs> that, something, that something about it was off-putting to myself and my family in general, because I knew the clan wasn't good. I think yeah. if nothing else, I knew the clan wasn't good. And I'm, I'm pretty sure I knew the clan wasn't good for black people specifically. And the fact that someone somewhere at, at some time, put the money and the resources together to build this huge billboard that literally, quote unquote, welcomes people into their city is just as you related in your story and as, as you read so well, because I literally made my, my head was sort of, I thought, oh my God, I'm getting a, a headache. <laughs> it's just like my head was just starting to feel the sensation of what, and I, and I think part of that is that in retrospect, Things may affect you. Things do affect you differently than they do when they initially happen or when you're initially experiencing them. And, and as I said in, a, in the poem, at least tried to say, is that it's all this sort of mystery of like, what is this supposed to mean to me? What does it mean to me? How am I supposed to take this? Am I supposed to take this at all? What? But I, I will tell you this. I don't ever remember asking my parents about it. I, I really never do. And I, I, I have to think that that's partially because I, I knew it wasn't good. And maybe I didn't want to be, I didn't want that to be confirmed. Yeah. That it wasn't good. Yeah. But I, but I, I will say that, and I don't, I don't know if, if you had this experience too, if, if you have family in a, in a, in the South more Southern than where you live now, but I, re, I think this is true. I never asked my father about it either. But when we would go to Georgia, we always had to get up at the crack of dawn. I know it's kind of, it's kind of like a cliche. We always had to get up when it was dark out. I mean, literally, mm-hmm. we might go to sleep at, I don't know, eight or nine or whatever, because we knew that dad would want us in the car, shoot, by four, four five, maybe five at latest, because he wanted us to be able to get to Georgia that same day. Mm-hmm. And from Washington, D.C., that had to be like a 12 to... 14 hour drive. Yeah. We packed food. <laughs> we had a picnic basket, fried chicken, deviled eggs, potato salad. We had everything because we were basically staying in that car except to go to stops to go to the bathroom. And we used to sort of, at least the way I remember, kind of complain. It's like, oh, God, why do we have to get up so early? I just don't understand this. This is crazy. But in retrospect, I feel like that's why because he never wanted to risk us 
having to stop somewhere in the, in the deep South, his family of four and not knowing what was going on, especially when you're going to pass a sign such as that. Yeah. And, and that's, that's my, my reflection of it. And, and I, why it came up to write about it. I don't, I, I can only think it's because something happened or I might've just seen a, a mention of it in, in the, on the internet somewhere. And I thought, wait a minute. I, I, I remember that. I remember seeing that. And now if you go online, if any of your listeners go online. Yeah. Let's say maybe they research and they find it for you. Oh my God. You can find it. I mean, it's, it's, I don't know if it's that one. Cause I do remember it slightly differently. And that's my brother. The, the, the illustration is by my brother. And that's really by why I buy, because I showed him the pictures that are online yeah. of this of this billboard. So it's, I don't think, I don't think there's any now, but, but yeah, it's out there. But the first yeah, time I read it, about it, 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 it was a hippie who wrote about it, believe it or not. Yeah. It, it's, um, uh, it's sad, but I think true that some of these, the deeper into like small towns you go to in Southern States, you'll see little signage like this that still exists where the towns are still really small. And it's yeah. um, a lot of those signs that I saw when I was a teenager, like around, you, you know, certain small towns in East Tennessee, okay. for example, it's interesting. I think a lot of them from my most recent travels have been replaced by Trump country signs. <laughs> So it's like, it's this proxy for something, right? If yeah, you're not oh, yeah. sure what they mean, I don't even know if Trump knows what it means because I view <laughs> Trump as an elitist. I, I don't right, view exactly. him as a, as I have a different take on Trump than most people. I don't view him as a, as a, a Mississippi racist. I view him as a, as a guy who likes you if you have money. And if you don't, right. uh, he has no time for you and, or he's out to trick you. And I think that's the saddest part about it is there's a lot of poor people across the country, right. middle class and below that think that Trump likes them and, and he right. doesn't at all, at all, yeah. at all. So and it's, it's like, like can, it's, and it's easy to find. It's easy just to read yeah. anything. I mean, it's, and even if you read between the lines, it's, it's this what he said when he said that classic line, well, now it's classic. It's terrible, but it's classic now is that I can literally shoot people or well, or fifth Avenue yeah. and his, and his people would still believe, believe in him. And yeah. I thought that's not a compliment. You don't get that. <laughs> that is not a compliment. <laughs> it's not. It's not a compliment. It, 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 it really isn't. I, um, I have another poem I want to read, but before we get to that, um, one, thank you for all that. It, 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 there's a lot there. And, the roots of it go so deep. I don't think we'd have time to even go through it all on this, in this conversation. Uh, I, I, the thought I immediately had was this thing I used to tell people all the time, which is my mom taught me to lie. And what I meant by that is she told me when to tell a lie to the cops and when to be honest and in what Mm -hmm. parts of town to be to a lot of the cop, what parts of town and times uh, to say what your real name is or what your fake name is. Mm-hmm. And these were conversations that she had with me when my dad wasn't around. Wow. <laughs> so it, you know, it, it was, um, it's this kind of 
kitschy, funny way to, to catch people off guard. And my mom taught me to lie, but yeah. lie about what and why. But before we get too deep, we are talking about fists and rainbows. We haven't even told the audience yeah. what this is and what its message to the world is supposed to be. So can you talk okay. to us a little bit about why you wrote this and what you want people to get out of it? I, I, you know, you, in a way you sort of brought it up <laughs> is that I, within the last, I'd say five or so years, maybe it's, it, things take so long. Once something's out there, people, it's like when somebody becomes a huge star, it's like, Oh my God, this guy was an overnight sensation. Yeah. After 20 years, I mean, it's just, you just don't know. I mean, some of these things I've been, I would say this probably did not take as long to write overall as my two previous books, because they were like years after years, after year, after year, and then adding more and then finally deciding, Oh yeah, I think I can find a way to, to get this published or publish it myself or what have you. This one, I think, was really begun within the last, I'd say, at most 10 years. But certainly the fist in the, the with one fist in the air part of it, that was within the Trump years. I would say it's definitely within the Trump years. There could have been some thoughts within uh, Barack Obama's presidency, but it was confirmed <laughs> within the Donald Trump years. And part of it was that I... I felt like, and even though, you know, it's a blessing to be on your, on your, on your show and, and blessing to be able to, to have whatever notice I, I am able to achieve with this book or some of my speeches, this and the other. But many times I think, I wish I had a bigger voice. Mm-hmm. I wish I had a bigger profile. I wish I had a bigger audience because there's so much stuff that, that I feel like should be said, needs to be said that I don't feel like other people are saying, and maybe I'm just not hitting the right channels or hitting them at the right time. But, but there's hypocrisy. This is crazy that's out there. And there's, there's beliefs about what someone is saying which is certainly not true. And it seems like anybody can tell it's not true just by actions speak louder than words. And you're, you're, <laughs> you're going by what this person says, it differs to looking at the actions. And so for when, when Donald Trump became president and some of the things he would say and some of the, the reactions that his followers would give toward, I, I could say the unspoken messages that are there, were very frustrating to me. They were very, they were very horrifying to me. They were very scary to me. They were very disarming to me mm. because it, it, to some degree, it basically said, you still don't love me. You still don't care about me. Black, gay, you don't want me in your life. You wish I disappeared. You, it annoys you. It angers you. It, um, it insults you that I can be that anyone like me can be. And you embrace this person, as you just said, Chris, realistically could care beans about you who would like me much more than you because of my heritage, just because of who I'm related to. He would much more flock to me than he would flock to you. But because of what you see me as, and because he's been more overt even in a covert way about dis- being dismissive of, of anyone who's a minority, quite frankly, may be an immigrant, be they LGBTQ, be they, uh, being a Jewish, be they whatever. It's like, he's throwing, he's been throwing out all these messages and people just were refusing 
or they were jumping on that, but refusing to see how he acted as an actual person. Mm-hmm. And so many of the poems, certainly in, in the fifth part, are really about me just being kind of angry, <laughs> angry and feeling helpless, helpless to get the message out, helpless to get people to see the hypocrisy of what they're saying and what they're saying that they believe, which is literally hypocritical of something else that they'll say, depending on what the subject matter is. Yeah. So I say these were very, very recent. And I, I, I mean, one of them, I wrote a poem about, what was it? It might've been George Floyd, which I, oh, I know I was writing a poem, but this, the book was already out or the book was just getting ready to come out about um, the, the kid who shot the two people in, in uh, self-defense and Cal Rittenhouse. Is that right? That's what his name is. Yep. I had written one about that, about how that's okay. How's okay. If he has a gun, but God knows if I had a gun, even without shooting, <laughs> I'd be dead or I'd be wrong, but you're all about this. But I thought, well, I can't keep stopping publishing the, the book or giving it to the publisher because right. something else comes up because it's just like these mass shootings. If you're waiting for the next mass shooting, believe me, there's going to be one. Yeah. So you have to just go, if you have that feeling, if you have that impetus to write something, I guess for any of your viewers as well, your listeners as well, might as well do it because chances are it's not going to exist in a vacuum in a, in a one-off. Yeah. It's, it's unfortunate that it may come true again. So that's, yeah, and it depends on what kind of writer you are, right? Like if you if yeah. you're gonna write in the micro, you you will focus on a particular, you know, instance of something, almost like in a John McPhee, McPhee way. Yeah. But if you if you're a macro writer, so you're you're talking about sort of the existence of a thing in society, then you're gonna be fine. Because yeah, that next shooting's coming. That next injustice is coming that 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 lack of fairness is mm-hmm. is coming and i like the way that michael lewis has put it the writer michael lewis um who has written so many you know wonderful books liars poker and mm-hmm. um the god there's one i i love that i recommend all the time and um uh, something flash boys flash boys is amazing I'm writing it down right now so i can say like, michael lewis and He's, he's just a great writer. I mean, he makes the boring and the mundane really exciting, mm-hmm. like, like it's a Bond movie. But, uh, you know, he said, he, he said that right now what, what we're having in society is the majority of people no longer trust the referees. Yep. And when you're in a game and you don't trust the referees, you call into question the validity of the game right. itself. And it causes a lot of outlandish are, are black swan outlandish behaviors or black swan events, things right. that you couldn't predict things that wouldn't happen ordinarily simply because we don't trust the referees. And he makes an analogy to basketball, how players are increasingly more aggressive, violent and rude to referees during the game right. than they've ever been in the history of the sport. Yeah. Because of this sense of, I don't think you're acting without bias. Yeah. And so therefore I want this game to be fair. I deeply want it to be fair. I'm going to lash out. I'm going to be a revolutionary for Mm -hmm. 
that mm-hmm. foul you called on me or whatever. But mm-hmm. when you expand it to everybody, right, we're talking about all kinds of things at, the, at that mm-hmm. point. And who are our referees then? Congressmen that do nothing, uh, senators, right. our president, local uh, establishments, um, business owners, tech, whatever mm-hmm. it may be. So well, in that book, education. Would, the, um, this line in Hamilton where uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda writes down for his, for his character, he's talking to Aaron Burr. I guess it's right at the beginning of it before he sings, before he raps one shot. And, 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 and Burr says, your best if you keep your mouth quiet or something like that. And he says, if you, if you believe in nothing, Burr, what will you fall for? Mm-hmm. And I feel like that's kind of where we are now because so many people talk against the government. And they, they talk up, but they don't, they don't believe this person. They don't believe that person, but they do believe other people. And they mm-hmm. believe them because they, they, they still are anti-government, but they believe this person who's a part of the government. And, and it, <laughs> when, um, when that comes up, I think, yeah. you know, I, I, I think, and I've said one of my really close friends was sort of went down that path of like, well, you know, it's the government, this and the government does that. And, and, and I think, well, remember that we weren't a nation until we were a government. Mm. And, and he was like, trying to get, well, no, no, no. We, I said, no, no, no. We were not a nation until we fought the American Revolution and we decided during that battle that we were going to write our own constitution, our own bill of rights, and I come up with a, a flag and all this kind of stuff. That's when we became our own nation. That's when we became our own government. So if you don't want a government, then that we're not that. Because we are a government, a president, a Congress, senators, that's a government. If you believe in the Constitution, the Constitution is not based on just random people in an island or in a, or I don't know, whatever. <laughs> it's based on a government that's been formed by the people for the people. So, and again, that's another one of the, the I think, the frustrating things that I view as being hypocrisy is that. How can you not believe in the government of the, of the United States of America when that's what made the United States of America? It just, it, it boggles my mind that people don't see that and re- they refuse to see it. And I think the only thing that gives me solace is that I feel like, thank God, I'm not that way. <laughs> I think that's the only thing that sort of allow me to feel okay about it. Yeah, I, I think they, I think they would be okay with, government as it was, as it was written in the constitution for, for those people, I think times change and as things change, they evolve. And there's a a great line. I forget who quoted it, but the law, the line is, or who the quote is by the line is the future is already here. It's just not evenly distributed. Mm -hmm. So I think there's a, 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 a large swath of people who uh, live in a, in a place mentally and, and physically every day that isn't aligned with what's actually possible today yeah. uh, through technology and advancements, which we're actually going to talk about here in a little bit. But before I, I jump to that, uh, I want to make sure I, before I jump to, to lunch, I'd like to finish my, my breakfast <laughs> here, maybe yeah. even a brunch. Uh, can you alleviate me of my ignorance? I I don't know why you Maybe. chose um, <laughs> Fists and Rainbows as your title. Mm-hmm. Can you explain the entire title? Oh, I got you right. Yes, because I think that's sort of like what you asked me before, right? <laughs> but I go my my doctoral. Well, there was one like, what do you want to say in the po- poetry? But then there's 
Yeah, Kang. that's what I want to say. But what, what does it mean? Okay. But what does the title mean? Fist yeah. and Rainbows. I mean, part of it is that they were not going to be one book. They were, they were, I was thinking in terms of chapbooks. Chapbooks are very, very small, short pieces of short stories or poems. One was going to be called With One Fist in the Air, and that's about the topic we were talking about, African-American issues, about racism, mm-hmm. uh, social justice, and a pursuit and a fight against. The other was Hala, which is sort of a sequel to, theoretically, a sequel to, uh, gosh, what's my other book called? Uh, <laughs> uh, Until the Right One Comes Along. Isn't that crazy? Right. <laughs> Until yeah. the Right One Comes Along. Yep. And they were both, I would say, being written with a more active voice, which is to say, until the right one comes along, it's more like what has happened to me. How I'm reflecting on my life and how I haven't been in love, or this relationship didn't go didn't go well. This one didn't go well. Hala is more about someone who's taking more charge, or 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 looking specifically for certain things, or noticing certain things about situations which are bad or which are not good, and 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 one is not going to settle for that, or one is taking action in in a singular event and how that affects you singularly than one that's affecting your whole life and your whole perception of life. Mm-hmm. So the fact that it's fist is really fist with one fist in the air. It's just harkens back specifically to the black power movement mm-hmm. and harkens back to specifically to 1968 with the two African-Americans who were on the Olympic board uh, being, I think the, I think they won the gold and the silver Certainly, one of them, and and they both had their hands in the air. Nineteen yep. fifty-eight about the Black Power movement. So that's like with one fist in the air. If, and I don't think I have that. That line out is not really in one poem. I might have to do it in the future. <laughs> it's really not in. But it should be with one fist in the air. I will carry on with one mm-hmm. fist in the air. If if there's nothing else left in my whole body, I'll put one fist in the air so that you know I'm still striving. I'm still. I'm still going to try to survive and try to and try to move forward with one yeah. fist in the air. <laughs> See, I never even wrote that down. I never thought. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and Hala is more about again until the right one comes along. It's like I'm still pining. I'm still looking. I'm still longing. Hala is like okay. I'm trying to be more fourth righteous in the LGBT community, and so I'm going to holler at people. Say, how you doing? How you doing? What's up? You know things of that sort. And Rainbow being the, I'd say, universal symbol of the LGBTQIA plus movement right now. So Fists and Rainbow speaks to both of those themes being in this one book. Yep. I, I, I love it. And there is um, a poem in here in that Hollis section that I thought stood apart from the others, because one thing you do is you ride these tones mm-hmm. that can be pretty jarring because you start off this book and it's pretty in your face. It's like, okay, this, this, this book's hit me with uh, the black power movement. It's hit me with discrimination. It's hit me with uh, some of the worst aspects of American culture while still being hopeful about being an American, by the way, I should mention that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and to those just listening, you're wearing uh, an American flag shirt. Uh, so, so it isn't anti-American at all. It's actually just how do I, you know, how do I become a part of the society in a full way? Right. And then it starts to actually get pretty uh, steamy and sticky mm-hmm. when you get to the hollow part. I mean, it's, right. it's, it's, <laughs> it's sexy, it's sexual, there's longing there. Uh, 
but one that stuck out stuck out to me is called Missing You. Okay. On page 86. And it seemed to be just different in its tone yeah. than the other poems in the holler section. So I'd love to read it right now for the audience. So this is Missing You by Chris Haley. The clock ticks like a hammer on my desk. The heart tugs like a child at my breast. Phone blares like a mime with no limbs. Calendar days exed as they pass. Happy memories, fragile as glass. Our love is clouds floating past. Time moving on. Moments replacing moments. Time moving on. Running and racing at such a slow pace. Time moving on. You were my time. Where's my time gone? I love the line, happy memories, fragile as glass. Our love is clouds floating past. Um, Because it gives me a visual of unrequited love that I've had in the past and, and people that I think of just for a moment. And you can't tell your lover that you can't tell your significant other that because they don't know how to take it. What do they do with that? And it reminds me of my favorite poet ever Rilke. Uh, Although I did my, my uh, term papers on Langston Hughes. uh, I ended up um, this kind of speaks to my heritage being half German, half black. Uh, Mm -hmm. I fell in love with the German poet Rilke who talks about not torturing people Mm -hmm. with your intentions but just loving them wholeheartedly and doing what you're going to do. Yeah. So if you could imagine a breakup with someone, for example, there's a, there's a Kendrick Lamar way to have it. If you've heard his latest album where you're going back and forth, calling each other names for four minutes. Yeah. Right. right? (laughs) And yelling and, 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 and dragging this thing out and being violent and, and angry and yelling. But there's another way to do it in which, you've already prepared your next move and you hold your tongue and don't give them anything to try to hang you with Mm -hmm. or give them any words to, to talk you out of your intention. Um, The same thing can be true of making the decision to be an artist full time. Yeah. Where your parents, your family aren't going to understand. You just need to go do it and not torture them with all your excuses and reasons why. Right. And just leave them and love them from afar and give them the opportunity to do the same mm-hmm. to you. And so when I think of that real key, real key point, which I actually have in front of me and I think about missing you and that phraseology there, that is the way we, in my mind, that's the way I think of, of, of people that I've loved in the past. They just kind of float over my memory, over my consciousness yeah. For just a moment and I smile and, or I, or I get sad or I get reflective or nostalgic. And then, then the sun comes back out again. Right. No, I think it's very, a very good illusion. Yeah. I, I think that one of the things I wanted to throw in there because, because you're exactly right, because it was again, I would say if, if I was describing this, well, I guess I already have, if I'm describing this book, a difference to even obsessions and until the right one comes along until the right one comes along is more 
I mean, I hate to say passive. I mean, it's, it's like, it's active longing or it's active. Yeah. Um, it's active. It's like bleeding. It's like, it's like pain. It's like this, blah, 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 blah. Um, so it's, it's active in that way of feeling. It's a whole lot of feeling and a whole lot of emotion. But this, I feel like this book is more about energy. It's like energy of, 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 of voicing your opinion, making actions toward what you want, making actions for what you're longing for and, and energetically reacting to something or, or reflecting on something. So you're just, you're just being more the person who does not the person who just has something done to them. Yeah. And so within missing you, I think that was, was me just sort of taking a step back to say that of all this energy, of all this holla, of all this moving forward, I remember at one time that there was a possibility there, a possibility where, where there wasn't longing anymore, where there was a hope and there was a place in time that probably could have been okay. If whatever circumstances, timing, uh, sensibilities had, had meshed at that time. And then just in thinking about that person, I think that's where you sort of reflect on the line that I put in there. Where has my time gone? Because as we all know, when we are in a relationship with somebody, usually at the beginning, it's everything, you know, it's everything and and everything and all things are about that person. Then you become sort of a more comfortable in it. And maybe it's not everything about that person, but that person still is a background of everything. It's like they have, they will know about everything. They become your parents in a way because you have to tell them where you are, where you're going, who you're going out with, blah, blah, blah. And, and it's not like they're necessarily going to tell you no, but they will want to know. Yeah. And so, and that's where this relationship was. And then I'm thinking, but that was so many years ago. What happened? Where, where like this was, this was such a thing and this was such a, a reality. What happened that it's not anymore. The difference to going down, I'd say, and until the right one comes along, I probably would have written about, well, you did this and you did that. And then I did this and then I did that. And then this happens, happened. It's like, no, we're not, we're taking it out of the, this is what happened. This is more about, this is how I feel. And this yeah. is how I felt. And I kind of missed that feeling. And I'm, and I'm remembering how I did like that feeling. Yeah but not necessarily that I'm going to try to get you again or find you again and, and make it all happen again. It's just that that was something worth remembering and something worth cherishing. And maybe it's taken me this long to, to, to accept it in that way. Yeah. I think that while we're in it, we complain about some of those things you mentioned, like I always have to check in with you. Right. You always want to know where I am. You're always in my business. Right. And then when you're out of it, you have this sort of opposite reaction where you say, Hey, that was a person who cared about where I was. Right. That was one of very few people who gave a damn about anything I was doing with my day whatsoever. Right. And, um, I think it stood out to me because it's a place, I mean, you allowed yourself to be sad in several poems and horny in several poems and lustful in several poems and the good guy and the bad guy. But I think in this one, it was one of the ones or only ones that, that you allowed yourself to be tender. Mm -hmm. 
and it really stood out to me. So, so thank you for, for writing that. It was great. Um, what do you love about Paul Lawrence Dunbar's work? Well, I, you know, that's a crazy, crazy statement. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. I, 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 partially, I'd say it, it, my Paul Lawrence Dunbar romance, romance idolization began because I was going into theater uh, at high school and I needed to do some kind of audition, just a monologue for this first play I was auditioning for. And my, I, I, God, I think this is what happened. My father said, well, why don't you read this poem by Paul Lawrence Dunbar? And I don't know if he, if he specifically told me which poem to read or if he just gave me the book or, or, or what. I feel like he gave me the book and he had art because he, he used to read poems by Paul Lawrence Dunbar. And in this book, there were pages that already had little markers in them or little pieces of paper, which he had obviously read before because he loved Paul Lawrence Dunbar. And and so I read this poem, uh, a Negro love song of all things, a Negro love song, which was in dialect, and it was just so joyful and so hopeful and so and so so playful and also kind of cocky <laughs> that I thought this is a really fun poem about somebody who is probably at the flirtation crush phase maybe not even a crush phase but a flirtation is like you know what i want to i want to holler at you <laughs> let's see yeah, how, that, yeah, how yeah. that goes down and the dialect in and of itself i thought was great because i did not feel offense by it i did not feel that it was in any way insulting uh, as a as an african-american because of what he was speaking of because when he speaks in about racism and when he speaks about in social inequalities from at least I haven't read every single poem to the point where I memorize them, but from those that I recall, he does not speak in a dialect mm. when he's speaking more, when he's writing more in terms of, of the life of an African-American, then he's speaking in dialect because that's how people who are in the eight, 18, 19th century, that's how they would have spoken unless you are Frederick Douglass or somebody else, yeah, yeah, yeah. that's how you would live your life. But when he's reflecting as when he says, um, we wear the mask, then he's very, this is a, this is a King's English. And, you know, and I don't know, I read about him, but I don't know if this is a mindset in my specific mind right now. I'm thinking that maybe he was like, I don't want you to miss this. Mm. So I'm going to speak in your language so that you get exactly what I'm saying. When I'm talking about my folks and I'm just having fun, then I'm going to talk in the dialect. But when I'm talking about we wear a mask so that you don't know what we're thinking, I'm going to say we wear the mask that grins and lies because I want you to know that, yeah, I may be smiling, but I'm just lying to you. I want you to get those words. So I think his directness and his playfulness and his rhythm and, and, and quite frankly, when I learned his story, which is a tortured story of someone who became an alcoholic, he had health problems, tuberculosis, who died, I think, of 34 years of age, mm. who was also very much a mama's boy. <laughs> I mean, it's it's a very it's a very emotional, tragic story of someone who was not only brilliant, but brilliant at a young age, but even at brilliance at that young age, a success at that young age did not make him happy. He did not end up being 
a thoroughly, completely satisfied individual by the time, which I guess was epitomized by the breakup of his marriage to, um, is it Sarah? I don't remember his wife's name, who was also a poet. And then dying by and alcoholism when he's I think, just 34, not 19. Sometimes I get him confused with John Gans, who's another idol of mine, <laughs> the first uh, African-American who won a boxing title. But yeah, so I, he was just all thing, all the drama and all the art of the, the great tragic artistic figure is something I sort of idolized as a kid. And he yeah. probably, he is the one that I would say is my favorite, certainly my favorite African-American writer of poetry. Yes. I'm not familiar with a lot of his work. I became familiar with him on the surface, just researching for this conversation. So I will have to go back and dig deep. And, you know, he shares a lot of characteristics with, I think poets that we all tend to love because I think there is something in us that says that, that admires someone who uh, only knew one thing and, and dove all in, you know, into it head first, took it very seriously and maybe died young because of it. Yeah. Um, You know, Langston Hughes didn't die young, but probably died in a way he shouldn't have and died young enough. Uh, Who I mentioned Rilke died before he I think he was even 30, maybe. Was he 27 so, or something like that? I know he was really, really, yeah, really young. So, and, and conflicted with religion and, and, right. and lust and, and love and all these things in poetry. So, yeah, the, uh, everyone dig in. That's Paul Lawrence. Dunbar. Lawrence is spelled L-A-U-R-E-N-C-E. Yeah. Dunbar. Uh, you, uh, I, I talked about East Tennessee earlier. And anyone from East Tennessee, I don't want you to be offended. We have a lot of great friends there. I have never been to Knoxville and had a bad time. Oh, excellent. So, so I want to be clear <laughs> that those towns in East Nashville I'm talking about, or East Tennessee that I'm talking about, are it's not Knoxville. <laughs> uh, Knoxville is a wonderful place. And you were there yeah. uh, this past April for the Alex Haley, your uncle Alex Haley. Yes. Uh, uh, there was a Alex Haley festival. So can you tell us how that was, how it went and, and how it was celebrated, I suppose. Okay. And, and why Knoxville? Right. There, there is a statue at, at the, it's called the Alex Haley or the Haley heritage square, mm-hmm. which is in Knoxville, uh, Knoxville, Tennessee. And, and I think it's, it's there because Uncle Alex, that was the last place he lived. Uh, oh, he, got it. I didn't know that. Yeah. He bought a fa- He bought a farm in uh, Norris, Tennessee, which is just about 20, I guess it'd be a 20 minute to the maybe Northeast suburb of Knoxville proper. Mm-hmm. And he lived, I think he got a place there in 1982. It was perhaps two houses, a main house and a barn. And he had three other homes, three other different houses built there. And there was a man-made pond there, which I think there's a man-made pond, but anyway, there was a pond there. And he loved entertaining there. He had a, the Alex Haley Lodge, which is where he would have his big dinners, would, would have there. Then the other houses where people could stay with multiple, multiple bedrooms and, and virtually each, each of these homes. And so that was his retreat. That was his, his place where he could get away for what few moments he could from his hectic schedule of speaking and, and trying to write and, and re- relax back in, into to Tennessee and Knoxville. So, because of that, that connection, he donated his papers 
to the University of Tennessee at Knoxville. So that's where they are today. Much of what he has is there today. There's other things that, at who knows where, because it's collectors and, and all who have bought some of his materials. But a bulk of his, a huge bulk, as a matter of fact, of his materials are there at the University of Tennessee at Knoxville. So uh, it's a community there, the, the Beck Cultural Center, the director of the Beck Cultural Center, Pastor Renee, is the one who contacted me along with Teresa Venable, who is the librarian at the Alex Haley Farm, which is now the Children's Defense Fund office at the Haley Farm in Knoxville, because they were going to inaugurate an annual commemoration of of Alex Haley and Roots, because he's he's certainly considered a favorite son of that area. Yeah. At, at Oxville by the statue or by and the statues. It's huge. I mean, it's, it is gargantuan <laughs> in, in size on, on a very hilly mound of, of earth <laughs> where it's different levels there mm-hmm. that you could see. I mean, it's, it's, there's not a lot in that area, but I think it's worth to see it and have pictures taken with it. If, if at all possible. So I was there in the first annual commemoration of, of his contribution to, to Knoxville, to our, our world, our literary world, African-American history, genealogy, family history. And there are other people who, who sang. Uh, there was a, a, an artist there, a, a young man who, who has the beautiful artwork, who actually is, uh, I think he's, he's, he's autistic, and so even when he talks to you, he's with his mother all the time to sort of help him, I guess, facilitate things. But his his beautiful, beautiful artwork. So I'm, I would guess there's an article about it because I don't want to say his name incorrectly. So I'll just say, look for that event. Yeah. And you should be able to see who was the artist there. And the mayor was there, came by to say, I think it was some other local officials who were there to, to give greetings. So it was it was very, very well done. I think for the first event, and it was planned, it was only two weeks. It was very quick because they had received a grant in order to facilitate it. Yeah. That that it, it was well-received by, by everybody who was there. That sounds sort of Pollyanna. It was well-received. <laughs> but, but, but it was. It really was. It went over well. And I think the people who were there are looking forward to next year, which is going to be the 25th, I think, anniversary of Maybe when the fun, this 25th anniversary of something is next year. So that's, that's 2022. It's, it's not roots. It's something, somebody who's really, somebody who's more on top of what my history is. <laughs> <laughs> what happened 25 years ago next year in relation to Alex Haley? Because that's what, I don't think it's when he died. Oh, maybe it's when he died. Oh my God. No, it's because he died in 1991. So it's not that. I don't remember. It's something. I, I, when we're finished with the call, I remember. But but next year is a big year for an anniversary. I know that much. Yeah, absolutely, and hopefully, uh, I'll know in advance. I can I can make it to that. And and yeah. for this audience, just so you know, you know, University of Tennessee at Knoxville is the largest university in the state, so it has the most yeah. enrollment of any college in the state. So this is not a small school uh, at all. I, I am curious how you over the years have dealt with the media and people who want to diminish Alex's legacy based on courtroom outcomes and things like that. Right. I have bodyguards. Bang! Pow! <laughs> <laughs> we take them out. <laughs> Quick 
fast and in a hurry. Sure, positive, without a doubt, they are gone. You don't hear about them again. I mean, it's it's very challenging. It's very it's very uncomfortable. It's very I won't say it. Yeah, I guess I could say it's awkward, but it's not really so much awkward. It's just uncomfortable. It's just it's just for any per, any person who's out there who has a, a famous relative or a, or a friend with whom you're very close, who, again, is famous for whatever reason, once a person is in the public eye, they're, they're open for public conversation or public scrutiny. I mean, that's part of the territory because when you are in a, a public arena of perhaps, let's say, just the entertainment field or in the presentation fields or governance field, you are putting yourself out there for people to follow. That's what you really hope. You want people to follow you. You want people to like you. You want people to to appreciate what you say. Conversely, (laughs) there are other people who will be resentful of the fact that you've attained whatever, I don't know, uh, plateau that you've, you've reached. And they may be the friend or the follower of somebody else against whom they feel your success or your statements is offending or, or, or is, is in contrast to this person. So they're going to dislike you because of that. So Uncle Alex being such a huge figure, and, and excuse me, for, for African-American history, a huge figure for African-American history, for genealogy in general, and for the appreciation of, of your heritage can make some people, I would say, envious because they feel that they were the ones who really did this, but they didn't become famous or rich or lionized from it. So there's an element of we want to bring you down. And I'm sure anybody who is a a fan of anyone, Mm -hmm. whatever field they're in, are probably aware of the the term of being put on a pedestal pedestal, and then people want to knock you down. They want to knock you off your pedestal. Mm -hmm. So when that happens, when somebody writes something about my uncle or says it about my uncle, it, it definitely bothers me. And, and, and God knows, I'm not, I'm, and I'm not going to lie to you and say it doesn't bother me. You know, I may not, I may not do anything visually or or viscerally or even physically that necessarily lets you know that I'm bothered. But be assured that I would say for myself and my family. Our ears are well attuned <laughs> to, <laughs> to any statements that are said, and our eyes, or even with even with glasses on, our eyes are are well, I guess, focused when we see something that basically seems to be questioning our lineage and questioning our existence. Quite frankly, today, so what I I I, I generally speaking would say that I ignore it because. Not to ignore it is to give it validity. Mm. And, and I do know that in saying that, people say, well, you have to defend yourself. How can you let people say that? How can you people let you say that about your uncle and then and not defend him? Because I feel that many people, and I know I would say a couple, in, in at least one in particular that I know of, 
if I were to respond in any way to this individual about negative things he would say about my uncle, it, he would then take that and use it as being either validation of the negative things this person is saying or invalidation of anything I'm trying to do myself. Mm. So there's no win there. <laughs> and I think that's one reason why sometimes you're, you're here about one of your favorite stars, movie star, writer, author, whatever, who will not respond to some horrible things that are being said because that classic line from Shakespeare, methinks the lady doth protest too much. Hmm. And Lady Macbeth is rubbing her hands. Why can't I get this damn blood out of my hands? So people start, the second you defend yourself, people take that as being a, a proof that you are actually guilty of it or hmm. something is wrong because why would you defend it? If, if it's no skin off my back, then, then I'm not taking off my shirt because my shirt didn't get wet. My, my shirt is like, no, I'm not taking off my shirt. It's not bothering me. Sticks yeah. and stones may break my bones. No, 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 no. It's not even going to break my bones. No, I, 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 I will give you, I will not give you the time you crave by talking about this man who has achieved so much. And because he achieved so much, you're trying to achieve by denigrating him. So you can achieve something because you've denigrated this person who's achieved so much. Right. Um, and basically the, the path of the also Rand or the, or the second hander, uh, as, uh, as I've come to know them, I think it's a great, I think it's a great, a great answer, a great approach. I, I'm curious what an acceptable form in your mind, what, what an acceptable form of reparations would be if cash was off the table, if cash was off the table. Wow. Um, yeah, gosh. Because <laughs> the second you say that, people are like, whoa! Or those people who don't believe in it are like, yeah. whoa, you are reverend. Because, because I think that's what people... <laughs> yeah. And, and, and that's what you, you can... I would say on the spectrum of liberalism, mm-hmm. or progressive, progressiveness, talk about, about um, li, li, uh, reparations to someone. Your friend who, who seems, like, seems like the most liberal person in the world and for those of you who didn't see me, I just did my head wags. <laughs> I didn't have my finger in the air, but that's, that's could have accompanied it. But talk to a person who you think is the most liberal in the world and mention reparations for African-Americans ancestors having been enslaved and see where, where they are in that spectrum then. Because I have certainly been privy to more than a few well, I, mean, I would say specifically two come to mind, mm-hmm. but I think there's more than those who I just don't, because they weren't already on that pr- claiming to be progressive or liberal. So it didn't strike me that much. They were like already in, in denial that it's worthwhile, but you will get, well, you know, my family probably would have been worse off than, than they, and they wouldn't say enslaved. They would say the slaves, my family probably would have been there working next to Like, wow, really? You're going to go there? <laughs> and they do. <laughs> Um, and, and, and it's always like my family would have had it worse off. Well, you know, I, and they even go to that, that try to do and I, well, I was never a slaveholder. You were never a slaveholder. They, oh, well, so we're talking about, re- we're talking about right now. Okay. So if, if we're talking about the right now, there's other things that we shouldn't be doing. If, if that's what we're talking about as 
the 4th of July. You know what? Are, are we really going to still celebrate the 4th of July? You know what? This country has been in existence for almost 200 years. Do we still need some fireworks? You know, the Pearl Harbor, are we still worried about? Yeah, I mean, there's, there's, there's different things that are out there. I did which, see where uh, Walmart got uh, had to apologize for celebrating Juneteenth with uh, red velvet ice cream. Oh, really? Okay. And a bunch of like Juneteenth. <laughs> oh, that's funny. <laughs> like colors and, 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 uh, you know, images on the carton. So just Google, oh. Google Walmart ice cream Juneteenth and just look at the really? image of this ice cream carton, Chris. And, and, and you, <laughs> you, you'll laugh and then you'll shed a tear. So <laughs> it's just, it's just weird. I get what you're saying. It's like, like we take these things really seriously and then corporations uh, double down on on how we take them. Yeah, and it's just it's and it's, it's, it's and that's very annoying too. And I don't know, I I, I don't remember to what degree I touch on this. In why well, I have a Juneteenth poem, as a matter of fact, I remember I have a Juneteenth poem, but um, I don't remember to what degree I've talked about the the faux liberalism that's out there. But 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 it's also very annoying, and it's also because it, it it goes back to that statement which I think Chris Rock said so well in one of his concerts, and it was it was a funny moment, but it was also that funny moment where you're laughing, and I I think in a it would be along the lines of when Arsenio Hall has his TV show, and he was the things that makes you go hmm yeah. But when Chris Rock said. There's not one person in here, or there's not one white person in here who wanted to who would want to change places with me. And I'm rich. Yeah. And I think that's what makes you think with someone who is who is saying that they're really progressive, they, they don't see color, they say this, then the other. Uh and but then you say, Well, gosh, what do you think about reparations? Well, my family would have had it worse off than your family. <laughs> well, okay, well then there you go. Because it comes out, but you're still black. Yeah. And, and, and they would never say that. They would never think that. But I mean, in my mind, it's like, yeah, but you're still saying that. But, I, I, but the black thing is too much. The black thing is, is still too much because yeah, and, then I can hold it back to like, but I could, I probably had it worse. And there are these little flippant offenses that you have to deal with as a black person or, or maybe any brown minority throughout your lifetime. And they start to add up and weigh on you uh, as mm-hmm. a, as an interracial child, uh, I was acutely aware that all the risk was on my dad's side. Oh, wow. My mom, who's black. Okay. All the risk was on his side. So, so when you hear, if you're my mom and you hear, well, my future husband's family is going to disown him and not talk to him. If you marry me, then internal, I internalize that and realize I'm the problem. Yeah. But why am I a problem? And I'm a guy with a white wife. Yeah. And, I think about it all the time that of every time I've been in any interracial relationship, the risk is and the risk and danger is always uh, taken by the other, not by me. Like, right. like I'm letting you come into my life yeah, and I'm taking risks because of what people will say about me. Well, what will people say about me? Right. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't matter what they say about you, Chris. Right. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. so what are you talking about? <laughs> Right. And, and it's a really weird, it's a really weird thing because I think sometimes somewhere deep down inside, and I'm not saying that I don't, I haven't enjoyed my interracial relationships or that I don't love my wife. Sure. But what I'm saying is, is somewhere deep down after a lifetime of that, I have to at least objectively admit that part of me just wants to be with the winners. 
God, I just want to be accepted. Yeah. I just want to mm-hmm. feel part of this world. And right. a really easy way to do that is to date someone who's in the majority. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. There it's was a really weird thing to say out loud. And I yeah, hope it yeah. comes off the right way. But mm-hmm. I, I asked you the question about reparations because I want to expand the Overton window of what's acceptable reparations. <laughs> therefore, you know, therefore, if you say something really outrageous that expands the Overton window, right. then eventually we might fall back to cash. Right, right. <laughs> That's too funny. <laughs> I love that idea. Well, you know what? I mean, you know, <laughs> what would be really, what would be, fine, but it would, would, and again, it would never happen because now it's so valuable. Yeah. The whole 40 acres and mule thing. Yeah. It's like, now do I want a mule? No, but those 40 acres wouldn't be bad. Yeah. (laughs) If if you could just give my family line down some 40 acres on the, on the Carolina shores. Oh yeah. I'd go for that because I, I would get the insurance that covers the, the, the flooding (laughs) and the storms that might happen. And I would have maybe an Airbnb or something up there. Maybe I'd have a nice, house because the, the, the cost of living is lower down there. Yeah, you give me about 40 acres and we'll make it happen. So I think I think that's one thing that that if we want to go down uh th- that path of, no you don't need to give me money give me land as 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 uh Papa O'Hara said to, to Scarlet O'Hara at to Scarlet in in um, Gone with the wind it's the land Katie Scarlet it's the land <laughs> it's always about the land so so give me some land if, if you're, if you don't want to, and then I worry about it, you no, know, give me the land and I worry about the taxes, this, that, and the other, give me that. Because what, what, what I'll do is I'll sell some of that land and then I'll be able to pay for the rest of it. And the other thing that's very, I think, again, it's the ir- irony of it. And there's so many different thoughts in my head, but one thing that for this, this, this presentation that I'm doing this, well, it, it won't matter here, but I'm doing a presentation very soon on Juneteenth. Mm-hmm. And studying for this presentation, one of the things I found was that when slavery ended in Washington, D.C., it, it was April 16th, 1862, I believe. It was an act that was signed by Abraham Lincoln. It was a D.C. Emancipation um, or D.C. Proclamation Act. Mm-hmm. When I looked for it more specifically, because I wanted to be right for this presentation, the actual name is the D.C. Compensated I think it's a DC, it's D, definitely the DC Compensated Emancipation Act. And I'm like, what does that mean, compensated? Because all of those slaveholders who had to part with their human property were paid $300 or at least, or a range of money, but primarily $300 for each enslaved person that they own. So if they own one person, they got $300. If they own 50 persons, what does that mean? Yeah. Also, for those freed black people, they were offered $100 if they would get the heck out of Dodge. Literally, black people who were freed were offered $100 if they would leave. If they wouldn't leave, then you're free, but it's going to be rough. But if you'll leave, we will give you passage on the Greyhound somewhere else. There's a train that's leaving soon for New York. Leave. Yeah, and for I those that don't understand inflation, three hundred dollars oh. back then is an enormous sum of money. It really is, and a hundred dollars would have been enough to sustain that slave for months. Right, exactly, and and then 
And I say that specifically because what I, this is from the, the DC archives. There's, there's pages that they have in honor of their emancipation of, of their, just their April 16th, 1862 act. So there's a lot of information on there, which I was able to find for, from this, but it's talking about the fact reparations have happened. As much as people want to talk about, oh, black people, you know, how are we going to figure it out? How are we going to do that? It's like, okay, well, figure it out. <laughs> because, because you cannot, because people will say, well, I wish I, that's the other thing that, that on that scale, on the scale of progressive liberal, I wish I had the reparations for how hard my father had to work or how hard my great, great grandfather had to work. Well, some white people did get reparations because they actually were paid for that. And yeah, this, this isn't this isn't a new precedent. I mean, the city, I, the city I'm in, which is a little suburb outside of Nashville, the whole thing is still owned and, and named after a couple of people who fought in, in a war in North Carolina and were granted land for their service. Yeah, they were they were granted thousands and thousands of acres. Wow. Uh, they've named streets after these people. And they all came from England and then fought for the U.S. instead of for England and in turn were, were granted land that ended up being the state of Tennessee. Wow. You know, and, and it's like that in every state. So there's precedent for it. Like, like land, you know, given land isn't, isn't, isn't like an outrageous claim. No, and, and, and whatever anybody fears, it wouldn't change that. Like, that, like, Right. It wouldn't be like, oh, we gave Chris Haley his his 40 acres and a mule, and now there's going to be a thousand Chris Haley's, and they're just going <laughs> to run over. It's going to be Chris Haley land down there. Right. Exactly. No, you still wouldn't be equal. You still would. It still right. wouldn't be enough. It's it actually right. exactly. still still wouldn't be balanced. You would just be. You would just have a place to sort of build your legacy. And the reason I bring up the land is because the families that started this town that I'm in. Their ancestors still own the land. Wow. <laughs> they still have it. This stuff, yeah. this stuff is it really pays off generationally. Yeah. It it <laughs> it really does. It it makes a difference. Yeah. No, I think it's I would say land and education, because that was something that was that was frowned upon for us. And and I think and it, again, it's, it's, it goes back to what, I don't know if I wrote that in Fist and Rainbows or not, but or with what Fist in the Air part of it, is that it's not a compliment when someone says that they love the uneducated. Yeah. When he said that, people took it as a compliment. It's like, no, what is that? Break it down. He loves stupid people because they believe what he's saying. They fall for whatever he's saying. That's what he's saying. Yeah. He's, so, the, he, he's not, he's not Einstein. He's the Pod Piper. Yeah, exactly. And, it's like, and wow. he's leading, he's leading the children out of the village. Right. Right. <laughs> uh, going, for going, for some going. offense he's, he's been dealt, you know, in the past, which had, he had to have happened because he was a New York Democrat up until yes, you know, exactly. 20. Exactly. 2016, right. and we're talking about Trump here. Uh, I did hear you say that it was only a gap of 375 votes that ended slavery in Maryland. Yes. And it had me thinking and doing research on how many people actually affect policy in the United States in general. And it turns out it's like an incredibly small 
sector of people that actually vote in primaries, that actually vote locally, that really turn the tide of policy in the direction the country's going in. It's, it's not really representative. It's like, it might be, it might be sub 3000 people in, in some cases that really get a movement going. So I think about reparations and it's like, how do you get the people of all backgrounds who are for this concentrated and focused enough to see it through to the end? Mm -hmm. Because it seems that it's distraction that, that, that gets in the way and the policies that move forward and laws that change or don't change those voting groups and in cadres are are infatigable and and undistractable, and they get things done. Like you, if, if if like if there's like a law around something religious in the South, for example, mm-hmm. those people are dedicated. They they're not going to be distracted. They right. have a singular goal and they get their goal done. So, right. I I don't know. Do you have any ideas on how to not be distracted around this issue? If you're if you're pro reparations. I mean, I, th- I think that, that you just have to, f- it's, I mean, it's, it's everything simpler when you, when you just put down words, you can only write down one line at a time. <laughs> and yeah. so, it's, so it's, so it's when you just think of, think about that, then of course it's done. Uh, I, I, to some degree, I think what, how a person can approach it is to say, is to start going through, well, what's not enough? What's, what's not what would not satisfy you? What would not make you feel that you've been listened to, that the uh, the issue is being addressed or has been addressed? And so that's one one path of going around it. So if because in reality of it, there's probably not enough money in the world to really repair two hundred or so years of of having having a race of people either enslaved specifically and or treated specifically as second class citizens. And then quite frankly, I think second class is, is bumping it up some as like yeah. third class citizens or whatever. If you look at the laws and if you of the persons who were free and even persons who were freed, how they were limited in their ability to 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 share fully and the, and the constitution. Yeah. So if you start taking that away, because there's not enough money or there'd have to be money that quite frankly would come to you every single year, which is to say, okay, you can give me $100,000 this year. Then you give it to me next year. And then you give me, give me next. It's almost like the publisher's clearinghouse. And I know because yes, <laughs> I, I, I enter, I'm waiting for my balloons and my champagne because for, what I understand, the Publishers Clearinghouse now, if you win whatever the award is, say it's a million dollars or whatever, or $5,000 a week for the rest of your life, you can then, for one more generation, you can will that to someone else, which mm-hmm. is to say that if you, Chris, had won it and you got the $7,000 a week or $14,000 a week for the, till, you're, till you passed away, then you could will it to one of your children. Now, of course, do you have more than one child? Yes. Okay, that'll be rough. But anyway, <laughs> I don't know how you did that. But but you can. Well, there's one I like more than the other. So. Well, then there you are. Well, then, <laughs> then it's gonna be simple for you. 
Kids, you still have time. <laughs> yes, Kids, still I'm have. just joking. I love you all. Yeah, you, especially you if you do your chores. Yep. But, uh, but so, so that's, I mean, that's kind of along the lines of if for 200 years, so I, I'm, I am doing a big, big, big scheme of it. Because if you give me, shoot, even if you give me a million dollars, I'll be happy for my life. Because yeah. I, I don't feel like I'm going to go out there and be Johnny Depp and buy an island or whatever. But that's just me. And I think, but what about my, my, my nieces and nephews or my cousins or this, that, and the other, uh, they should have something too. And, and there was fundamentally more that you were able to do with the money you have that I was able to do because there's all these criteria and limitations put against me having that money or what I had to do to maintain that money. But if you were to give it to me one year, and then give it to you again next year and again next year until for 200 years in my family line, then yeah, then maybe we could talk. I'd even knock it down to 75,000, which isn't really isn't enough to live yeah. off nowadays with the, yeah. with the house. But you give that to me every single year. But one lump sum, you know, really one lump sum is not enough. So, yeah. I, so I will say that clearly. One lump sum is not enough. Yeah, it's a, if you're talking a, money. Exactly. That's why I think you take the land because the dollar just continues to lose value. So at least the land you can live on, build on and have and and pass down. And, you know, there's no, it's not in jeopardy from, you know, China or, uh, you know, some other global entity that, that might end up being the reserve currency of. Yeah. I would say that I would, I would go that or education because education is what was used to keep us down because they knew the more we knew the more we would realize that slavery was wrong, inequality is wrong. So scholarships, and I won't even say I think that's a really interesting idea too, by the way. Yeah, I just think that that's because... And I think people would go for it. Like, yeah, yeah. okay, you get in school. Right. I mean, a part of it is just... And, and, and not rub people's noses in it, Chris, but just... Yeah, do it. exactly. It's just, you do, and, be, and, and it's not like, that's the other thing that drives me crazy. I don't know if you're going to ask this question anyway, is that when, when, what we're talking about CRT now yeah. and, and that issue of making kids feel bad or making white kids feel bad. Cause I mean, <laughs> we're just talking now, but, <laughs> but it's like, okay. Or, 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 or the thing about, uh, oh, there was some, James Patterson said something about, he felt like white uh, authors are, are, are experiencing a different kind of racism. I haven't read the article yet because I thought, well, why go down that path? If that's a statement, I'm sure it's somewhere in there and maybe I'll read it, maybe I won't. But if you, as a white man, woman, white child, are feeling uncomfortable about this discussion of racism, which makes you feel that that you're being viewed as the, I mean, as a villain or whatever, how do you think that black person has felt for all of their lives? How do you think that black child has felt when there's nothing in the history book for them to even look at, for them to either, even relate to? I mean, there's Frederick Douglass, there's Harriet Tubman, and then you you start searching, you know, Barack Obama. But but after that, it's kind of it's kind of a slim book, unless you really really are looking for it. How do you think that black child has? How do you think black men feel when they know that they could that if they're arrested by a policeman, quite frankly, black or white, it's been indoctrinated in us to fear more that black person than a white person. How do you think we feel having to live in that reality for all of our lives? There's no sign going into Detroit 
going into Washington, D.C., going into uh, Chicago, Illinois, where it says you are now entering Black Panther country. You are now entering, uh, you know, whatever. And yet for many years of, of our, at least the lives of our parents, there was a sign in the South that said you are entering Klan country. How do you think that made us feel? And if you're feeling a little bit like that, then fine. Now you get it. Yeah. Now I guess you're getting it. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting because, you know, the pushback on that is statistically white men get killed by police more often than, than at a higher rate than black men. But, and Sam Harris is someone I've, I've heard, um, have some intellectual takes on that uh, Mm -hmm. before. And my pushback is, well, first of all, um, yes, but because of the uh, bias that exists, the things that happen. So the things that have happened to me have never been, are, are, they're not researchable. Yeah. They didn't end up in a file. They didn't end up in an arrest. It was just harassment. And, and, and so what the studies found is that yes, white men get shot at a, at a higher clip than black men and, or killed, I should say, not shot killed. Sure. Black people are much, much higher risk of being, uh, uh, assaulted. Uh, so you have to pick and choose like, well, right. what we're talking about is the daily assault and harassment for just being the color you are. Right. And you, you know, you, you say, well, that's not so, that's not as bad as getting killed. Well, yeah, it is. Yeah. It's worse because all those assaults could end in your death. The fact that they don't is a small miracle, but this is, it's a constant systematic thing. Whereas, when uh, when you look at these cases of white guys that get killed, they're usually armed and being pretty right. They're, they're pretty you know pretty pervasive and dangerous, and and probably have to be put down uh, by the cop. And then right. we and, and it's and, and I was asked a question the other day by a, by a uh, a reporter in Annapolis area, and he was saying, "Do you uh, is it does it get hard sometimes to talk about this? Does it get hard sometimes to do the, to do this research?" And I said, you know, it absolutely does. I mean, really, I said, it absolutely does. And, 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 and I would say, and what I think people perhaps don't know or don't realize is that, and I have said it, I think to some of my colleagues before, but I was really glad that this reporter asked it. So maybe hopefully he'll write it down in whatever the article comes out is that almost like you said, you want to be, sometimes you want to be on the side of the winner. You want to yeah. be on the side of the person, the majority. I don't like having to talk about how bad history was for African-Americans. <laughs> I don't like having to talk about how LGBTQ people can still be beat up and bashed and, and it'll be accepted. It'll be okay. I don't like that. That's not something that makes me comfortable. It's there's not a sadomasochistic bone in me that says, Hey, I'm going to get off and talk about how bad my life has been and how bad my great, great grandfather was treated. Oh boy. This gives me, this is better than a comedy show. It's like, yeah. no, you, you don't, I don't know many of us, who are, who are in this field, either as a historian, as an archivist, or who focuses on African-American history, genealogy, or, or even as an actor who's trying to find a part and see that there's so many more parts for, for, for white Americans than there are for black Americans, but even more, more than Asian Americans, more than Hispanic Americans. So it's not fun. It's not fun to see hear and experience that reality. But 
I am a human being. <laughs> and as a thinking human being, all you could do is, as you said, sometimes you just don't talk about it. As, as Boron Lawrence Dunbar said, we, we wear the mask that grins and lies. It's like, because to some degree, those people who, who very much were supporters of, of anything that, that Donald Trump said, they're not going to believe a thing you say. They have decided they're not going to believe a thing they say. So then why expend your energy? Why expend your, your, your self-worth? Or not, not your self-worth, but your peace <laughs> by getting in an argument with someone who has already decided, even if you absolutely give them verbatim evidence that they are one mindset. I, I feel like it's been said before that if Barack Obama had offered every uh, every uh, person of, I don't know, whatever demographic you want, a million dollars, the people who are in the, let's say the right wing, extreme right wing uh, pocket, so to speak, would be like, oh, well, you're wasting somebody's money. Where's that money coming from? But that they would take it, but they'd bitch and moan about it. Whereas if Donald Trump gave them that money, wow, how great he is. See how wonderful he's giving us money. And it's literally between who is giving it to you is how you weigh your acceptance and your yeah. appreciation of it. Yeah. And, and I feel like some of these things we're talking about are because people have refused to see reality. Or to, or to see, or to see, or to appreciate or validate someone else's point of view if it differs in any way from their own. Well, and not to mention, I would say sub 5% of the people I talk to have uh, very, um, have, have any good idea of, of the nature of money and where money comes from and, and how you get it. Right. Uh, it's a fun experiment to just say, Hey, did you know the government doesn't have any money? <laughs> right. Like all that right. money comes from you. Like they don't produce a product in the economy that outputs a revenue stream or any annual recurring revenue. So there's no ARR. They don't, you know, there's nothing there where they should, you know, they're able to give you a paycheck except for the agreement that we have, which is taxation with representation. So, uh, or, you know, just the printing of money, what right. it all means. People don't even know where the, so they, so they are left in this partisan place where it's like, well, as long as the money comes from the person I like, it's okay. Cause I want a free lunch too. And that's what, that's what everybody wants. It's, it's, it's weird. I do, I do have this thought and I have this theory in the back of my mind, Chris, that CRISPR and other DNA companies are going to change society forever because I, like you do not like harping on it and, and talking about it. And yeah. I, I've, I've said on this podcast, I don't like it when my race precedes me when I walk into the room, the same way I don't like when someone's Harvard MBA precedes them before they say a word, I'm supposed to just assume they're brilliant. Um, but I think that through DNA, and I was an early adopter on this as well with 23 and me, okay. you find out that you're a bunch of things. Yeah. And I think that, and I have this thought and theory in my head that once adoption is fully mass uh -huh. across the globe, one of two things will happen. One, 
the world will be a more harmonious place because everybody will realize they have a little bit of everything in them. Mm-hmm. Right. So I have no less than 10 different cultures and nationalities in my DNA as yeah. it turns out. Okay. <laughs> or things turn a little bit dystopian in the sense that through DNA, we're able to make new Kings. Meaning, oh, wow. wow. I'm part of this group. That's completely pure. I'm, I'm the, I'm the 1% of, of people who have nothing in me, but this. Wow. Which means I'm from the line of this family. Yeah. Which means I'm owed this. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. So that could be interesting. Um, you've been so cool by the way. And, and I, I, I love having you on because I learned something every time you're such a historian and, and well-spoken on it. Um, uh, and, and can go deep mm-hmm. on a subject deeper than <laughs> me for sure. But I do want to talk about, is it okay if I talk about you a little bit? Sure. I want to talk about Chris Haley, the artist, because um, I had this epiphany, Chris, the other day, and I shared it with my team. This idea that if you're not where you want to be as an artist yet, and you're striving to something, that it's important to acknowledge it. Mm-hmm. And through acknowledging that you're not where you want to be as an artist, you are then admitting that this version of you Mm. is actually not capable of achieving the dream you've set forth to accomplish. And so therefore that version of you, which is a daily version that happens every day, you wake up every day a little bit better than the day before, hopefully. And if you do that, then you're constantly burning who you were yesterday and rising back up as a Phoenix as someone new and better. And so with that as the thought and and background and context, what do you think are your greatest strengths and weaknesses? Uh, Artistically. Right. I think that at my, uh, one aspect out, yeah, this, this, this came up over the weekend. So I was talking to one of my friends who I've known for like 30 some years or whatever. And I think they were talking about, you know, you do so much, you do this, you do this, you do this. And I said, yeah, I said, you know, but if, if I wasn't, if I could do one thing and that one thing was the one that I would be, I, I guess could make a living and it would be acting that, that, cause that was the one thing where I felt I was, I was innately intuitively good at. Yeah. Without really worrying about classes or reading this book or this biography or going to some school or being in any, I guess, company, I feel like given the time to research a role and the confidence and faculties to memorize my lines, if it was a, a, a lines for a play or music for, for a musical, I feel like I could inhabit most any role I was given because intuitively I, I have that, that creativity, that imagination, that openness to reveal oneself in the guise of someone else. Mm. The, the challenge that I have at this point certainly is that I just have this innate fear of of not being considered good at it or not being considered good at an individual role and, or 
at even just forgetting a line or forgetting a lyric, which of course is something that everybody does, and everybody, and it's it is just part of the the reality of living in a world where you have to perform with something else that you don't that you haven't necessarily thought to say naturally mm-hmm. it's that someone else has given this to you and you're and you're now memorizing it and trying to relay it in a way that seems believable based on what somebody else wrote and probably what somebody else directed you to to interpret Mm-hmm. I think that, so that fear at its base would just be memorization. It's like, Oh God, I can't remember the ways I used to. But even when I was really, really younger, there were times when I would forget a line. And it was, it just crushed me because I, or being able to cry on cue. <laughs> That's another thing <laughs> that actors will know about. There were times where I thought I can't do that role because they have to cry on cue at a certain point in time. And if you're doing uh, movies, then you cry on your close up. You don't waste it. But somebody else is close up. You don't waste it on a medium shot. You don't waste it on a long shot. You can get little weepy, but you don't. You don't give a snot and everything until it's your close up. So that's the other thing. So I think, other than that, I think probably there is a fear of success, which I I I didn't realize I had it until probably. I don't know. I don't know what brought it up, but there's somebody had talked about, well, you have done this. You have done that. I mean, you, you, you have, you know, you, your title right now is a pretty reputable title that what you have and people do ask you to speak in this, that, and the other. And I, and sometimes I wonder, but, but what would it be like if I did have that million dollars we spoke about mm-hmm. the 40 acres that a mule, the house on the South Carolina uh, seashore and I still wasn't happy Mm. and I still felt I was missing something. So I think there's that, that subtle, often underlying fear of success that, that I have, which is that, but what if I were to get all that and it still wasn't enough? Then what has my life been? Yeah. Because if this is what I'm sort of striving for, what I'm hoping for, and quite frankly, even in these, these poems that I've written, because as it's crazy at the keyboard, I think at least one or two of those poems talk about creating and, and hoping that you're doing good. Certainly in, in um, obsessions, I definitely talked about yeah. what, what do you do if you something like, what do you do if you find out that you, you can't do what you've always wanted to do? What do you do? Yeah. Just, you know, an awful thing. <laughs> um, but so I think that has been something that probably at times has held me back. I have because, a, uh, Oh, go ahead. Yeah. We, I, and I'll give you a specific example and, and, and then you, you go on, but there were two times in my life and I, and I do regret it right to this day, but I know what kept me from doing it. Two times in my life, a uh, dear close friends of mine, not like somebody I met on the street, but <laughs> somebody who somebody knew somebody who I was close to offered to give me on further entrees into the entertainment field. One friend of mine, whose name is Matthew, was in the original cast of Miss Saigon. And I was visiting him in New York. I think I was living in Connecticut then. And he said that they were having auditions, or maybe they weren't even having auditions, but they were they were interested or they were looking for the second male lead, mm. which is the, the guy who sings, uh, it's called Boudoir, the, the something of life. I, don't, I think it's the, it's the first song, the second act. 
And he said, well, you know, I could probably talk to the, 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 uh, the stage manager, and get your audition because after the show opens, the director's gone. Yeah. The director may come back every now and then to, to just check in, but, the, but it's as people in theater know, it's the stage manager's show. Once it opens, that's the person who keeps you on your, your P's and Q's, so to speak. And it tells you if you missed a line, missed blocking, all this stuff. But he said, I can get you an audition. I said, I said really? He said, yeah, I, I can do that. And so my mind went through all these excuses of why I wasn't ready. Mm. What was that? I just don't have a picture. I don't have a resume. And like, this is New York and I'm in Connecticut, which means it's an hour and a half ride. Mm. I could have driven it. It's like, yeah, I could have done that. Um, even if I had been in Maryland, that's three and a half hours. So, but, but, so I got, I backed out of it because I was so afraid. I was so afraid that if I, if I get it, I'll, I'll be bad. I won't be good. I'll forget my lines. I'll forget my words. And then I thought if I do get it, I don't know. I don't know. It was just sort of like that changes my whole life. Yeah. So I turned it down. Yeah. The other time was a friend of mine uh, who's, who's actually a, a best. <laughs> let's just say this. Uh, my friend Wayne, and people can figure out who he is, <laughs> but he's really, really talented. And he's a great comedian. He's a great singer. And he, and he specializes in improv. <laughs> people mm -hmm. can figure out who this is now. I know right away. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> so, uh, and we've known each other for, for many, many years. We've, we've uh, worked together at Universal Studios Florida. So there's another big cue for those people who don't know. So he was doing a show at the improv in Washington, D.C. The show was over and we were just talking at a table. And he and I think at that point he was either going into or had just gotten confirmed that he was going to have a summer. A summer. Uh, what do you call it? Summer replacement show for like four episodes. And he asked me if I wanted to be a writer on the show. And I mean, and, and I was, it wasn't like, would you consider, I think I might be able to get you in there. It was like, do you want to be, a, would you like to be a writer on my show? And my mind went to, I don't feel like if, I feel like if he had said, do you want to be a part of the company? Do you want to be an actor on the show? I think I would have been like, yes, right. Definitely. I'm there. But as a writer on the show, I thought, no, I feel like I'm more out front than behind. Mm. And I don't want to be necessarily, and, I, and I'm feeling more top banana than second banana. Mm -hmm. And so, and so I was like, well, you know, let me think about it. But somehow I got, somehow I said no. And so the show happened and it went really well. Then, you know, I think he had one of his, his, his game shows was, was happening. Then it was another time he came to the Naval Academy and he was doing a show and he, he was going somewhere after it. And so had a car and all this kind of stuff. And he said, let's hang out. Let's go somewhere and hang out. And at that time, I will tell you, Chris, I was like with bells on. <laughs> I yeah, was like, yeah. yeah, I don't need a suitcase. I don't need a pair of shoes. I will buy one at the Kmart. You know, I was ready to go. But there, quite frankly, there was a person with me who was bitching and moaning and complaining and complaining. And I wasn't paying this person enough attention. And, and I felt like, oh, God, I will not. I will not worry because I because because this person was a, a friend of mine, a very nice person. He was helping me on a movie project that I was working on. Mm -hmm. And at times uh, she was like very, I gave the pronoun, but she was very, I don't know, I guess possessive or something like that. But but she, but she was she had she was having a fit, and yeah. I thought I can't I can't I I can't win I can't, and I, and I, and so that's a regret I have because I I, I literally. If I had been in that car, I can't think of something he would have said to me that would have been an offer that I would have turned down because I had already turned down being a writer on his show.
because I thought that's the way you start up. That's the way to move forward. So I don't know if that's a weakness or that's a challenge, but I think it goes along the lines of of fear of success, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Like the self-sabotage thing. And I've had to overcome that. I I think I overcome that every day. That, That is so relatable. So, so thank you for that. I, yeah, I do wonder about advice you, you would have for any creative based on those experiences. Is there anything that sticks out if you had one piece of advice to give to someone? I, I would say, uh, and, and then maybe as this part two, sorry, Chris, uh, you know, how you cope with your own anxiety. Cause I know you've been, you've been quoted as saying it's your constant companion. Yeah. Um, I would say as far as the, 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 the coping with it every day is that part of it is real is recognizing that that it is a real thing. That's what they, it is a real thing. And in and of itself, it is not bad to deal with anxiety. It is not wrong to have anxiety to deal with. It is, it is, it is a reality. And as a reality, you owe yourself the respect to accept that's a reality and to accept that there's times when you need to step back and say, you know what, this isn't really feeling good for me. I'm feeling really nervous. I'm feeling really, really stressed out. I'd rather not do this. I'd rather not do that. I'd rather, uh, I'd rather um, for, for, take a rain check on this time. And, and I would tell you in the last couple of years, I've had specifically two or three different people. A phys- I think I had a physical therapist <laughs> who was totally not talking about anxiety, uh, a, a therapist. Cause I think going to therapy is like, it's okay because then you don't have to worry about your friend just saying things to be nice. You don't have to say, worry about an enemy just saying things that hurt you. Your therapist, well, yeah, they're getting paid, but generally speaking, if you can get one who's really going to give you their opinion, I think that's a good thing because you want somebody to bounce stuff off of you the difference is someone who just says, well, what do you think about that? Well, what do you think about this? Because it's like, well, I think this, but I feel like I'm crazy. So you know, tell me what I, what yeah. I can go. So I think you have to a- appreciate yourself and appreciate your feelings and act on your feelings. Mm-hmm. Now that doesn't mean hurt somebody else, but act on how you're feeling. Just like if it was another friend, just like if you had a friend who was, who was shaking and who was so scared about, because they were going in an interview, then what would you just say? Well, you know, suck it up and take it up. <laughs> or would you probably say, well, take a deep breath, yeah. you know, try to calm down, try to shake out your arms. You would probably try to give them some advice to help them feel better. So try to remember to do that for yourself mm-hmm. as far as anxiety goes. And don't be afraid to reach out. If the person doesn't want to listen to you, then don't reach out to that person the next time. Yeah. As far as this career in general goes, I probably would say for one, if you worry about lines, because I know many people say, oh, I can never remember all that lines. Nobody thinks they can remember all the lines. <laughs> Nobody goes and say, oh my God, I'm going to remember every single line. They, they always are worried about it. They're always concerned about it, but they do what it takes bit by bit. Don't try to remember all things at once, bit by bit, paragraph by paragraph. Try to go over it over and over and over again. So it becomes more second nature to you and realize that sometimes people add it. Sometimes people forget and, and, and they move on. And some of the biggest stars that are out there have had stage fright. Barbara Streisand did, uh, D- uh, Donnie Osmond did. I mean, people who are huge 
have said that they stepped away for a while because the stage fright was so bad. Are so there at any, the very least, are there any tactics? Sorry, to, sorry to are there any tactics are you use to remember your lines that you can share with the audience? After I've gone over them over and over again, I start. I try to write them down. I have this audition. I'll call back this for this Saturday, and it's not a huge part, but it's like it's like five or six lines. And so I've I've I put my hand over the lines, and then I just try to say it over and over again. And then I see it right. And if I didn't do it right, then I do it again until I say everything right. And I try to do it as far as tactical goes. I try to say it right with my hands over the lines at least three times before I move on to the next line. Mm-hmm. And then after I do that line, then I go back over those two lines and I try to say both lines four to three times. Now you can get, if you have a really big part, then obviously you do that. But that is the, that a section at a time, try to go, try to do it where you can get it exactly right at least three times each, go to the next one include that a bigger chunk and do that three times each. And then, you know, it's in there and then write all those lines down. Mm-hmm. You don't have to worry about at that point, you don't have to worry about the cue lines, what the person has said that has, uh, that has prompted your response at this point is just getting the lines in your head at all. So write them down. Once you've done the three times each and the writing down, Believe me, they are in you. Now, you, you write them down until you have that right. They are in you. Then it's probably good. If you don't already have somebody, get somebody to read the lines with you. Yeah. They, then they read your cue lines. If you don't have somebody to read the cue lines, you can use your phone nowadays. Record your cue lines. Yeah. Record your cue lines. Or if you still have a tape recorder, digital tape recorder, this is what I still do to, to this day. Record your cue lines and then press the cue line. And, and frankly, if you have to stop, stop it. But what I try to do now is I record the cue line and I just, I just respond to it. I just respond to it and try to give it real time. Yeah. So the, that's, uh, the that's movie my drive record. my car, uh, the lead character yeah. did that. I mean, he was doing it for a variety of reasons, okay. but he, uh, not to give anything in the movie away, it's a, Incredible, incredible movie. Uh, Drive my car. Foreign I've heard it's wonderful. I haven't seen it yet. It's really great, and uh, and and he does exactly what you said in terms of remembering his 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 lines. That's really really cool. Um, Utopia happened last year. Are you, are you doing it again this year? And and were there any films that that stood out at the festival that we should watch? Uh, we are doing it again this year. I think it's going to be in November. I don't exactly know. I don't know if we've decided specifically what weekend. I think it's the second or third weekend of November leading up to Thanksgiving. So as far as putting it around your heads, that's when Utopia Film Fest will be this year. As far as, gosh, there were some really good movies, but I don't remember so much right now. Uh, I think the short, there were two shorts, which are very, very good. Uh, so if you were to look on our website, utopiafilmfestival.org, I think it's .org and .com, see what we listed as our best short films. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now, of course, my movie's in there too, but hey, you know, <laughs> 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 you, 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 of course you can watch that un- unmarked. Yeah, but, um, unmarked is great. But what, thank you. But, but watch the two short films there are very, very good. Yeah. I, so, I would encourage anyone to do that. And uh, I, again, uh, now that I have a little bit more leeway and, and runway, uh, me and Nick and, and crew right. and hopefully everyone listening can make their way to Utopia, either online or, or in person. Uh, Chris, what a whirlwind conversation. I think yeah, we sure. touched on everything that the world has to offer for the most part. 
<laughs> it's all solved. <laughs> yeah, I, we've solved all the problems of the world. I think that's exactly. a, a great place to to, to stop. Now yeah. that we've solved those, uh, can you tell everybody <laughs> where they can find you on social media? Now that you're on social media, social right, right. media uh, on the internet, uh, and where they can even see some of your work. Okay, uh, I would say my website, Chris Haley Speaks. Dot com again chris haley speaks as in blah 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 what i'm doing right now dot com <laughs> i have a twitter account i have uh instagram account facebook and uh linkedin 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 you know can't really chat that's mostly about business ish type stuff but and, and youtube but i really haven't been able to do much with youtube but hopefully the social manager world will <laughs> will open me up to that but you need to hop on Twitter. You'd be great right. on Twitter. At TikTok. I have a TikTok too, oh. where I've been trying to put out poetry. For a while there, I was putting out two to three poems a day, which I did for about three months' time. So, uh, yeah, so there's a bunch of stuff on TikTok that, that I've written as well. Sometimes, most of the times, I'm actually reading it myself, but sometimes I'm just letting the music, some trendy music, hopefully, and just my words are there. Got it. And to find you on TikTok, just search Chris Haley or do, do we do Chris, Chris Haley? Haley you know, I don't even know. You see, because I, I, there's the name that you have, and then there's a name that, that the site sort of gives you. I don't know if it's Chris yeah. Haley 101 or I think Twitter is at CEH Writer. Yeah, that's yeah. true. At CEH Writer. TikTok might be. <laughs> TikTok might be. Let me see. I'm going to see if I can find it right now. It's real live, folks. I'm trying to find my own TikTok right now. Uh, home it is. Chris Haley. Is it just Chris Haley? It might just be Chris Haley. Now, yeah, I'm not the only Chris Haley, just like I'm not the only Chris. So it might be a little bit. You might have to search a little bit. You, you might it. be the only one reading poems, though. Yeah, right. It says, well, it does just say Chris Haley. So, well, it does say at Chris Haley Speaks, as a matter of fact. All right. So at, at Chris, Haley Chris Haley Speaks. Speaks. That's my TikTok on, on TikTok, everybody go do it. You will yep. be inspired. That's my guarantee to you. And Chris, we will end on this okay. weekend viewing around what we've talked about today, education, maybe the black experience, LGBTQIA plus experience. If you had to give me three films wow. for weekend viewing for, for me in this audience, what are three we have to watch concerning maybe education, black history, or LGBTQIA plus? Wow. Okay. I think I would do, and this is, this is a long one, but, but, it, but it's available on YouTube. So you don't have to pay for it. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, um, Oh, the times of the cross. It's about reconstruction in that era, because I think it's very <clears throat> important for us to be aware of, what happened after slavery, not only what happened during slavery. Yeah. And, and I, and I will say this. So to, to be, again, very honest about it is that I think I had watched it before. I don't remember, but I did start to watch it about maybe three weeks ago because I knew I had this presentation coming up yeah. and, and it wasn't easy for me. And I think it wasn't easy for me, not because it was brutal and it was, it was, uh, uh, blood and guts, you know, because it's, it's mostly black and white documentary, but just because of the subject matter yeah. and the subject matter is very close to me and very close to people, uh, you know, people of African descent, because it's, it's how the brutality continued after slavery ended and, and the, the trials and tribulations of that. But I think it's, it's time to undercross. If I, if I'm not saying it right, 
because this is I can't find it right now because I'm on my Mac and I can't use it as well. <laughs> so, right. But but it's a four part. I think it was on PBS. Mm-hmm. I think it's a t- Times of the Cross. Uh, now as far as let me see, what's another one? What were, what were the two others? Uh, it could be education. It could be Black History. I think okay. Amy Black History LGBTQ. Okay. Um, I think there's one that would sort of open my eyes very much so, and that was Jim Crow and the North, mm-hmm. which is about how there was different there were pro- policies of about land ownership that were being perpetuated in Minnesota hmm. and they were within land grants or, or, or s- selling properties where within the actual deed, there'd be mentioned that this should not be sold to a black person or this should not be a children to a color person. And certainly nothing really surprises me about racial inequality nowadays, but that was surprising to me and how it was, it was, it was shielded in plain sight, but people wouldn't look for it because mm. people didn't know to look for it, which is to say that in this land record, which can be written from like you, if you're about, if, if you're, if you're doing this with your real estate agent within that land grant, it says, okay, I've given you this property to sell, but you cannot sell it to blah, 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 this type of person. You can't do it. So, uh, and that's what, that is what was followed. So I think it's Jim Crow of the North. Um, I think that's the one. Oh, what is this other one? Oh, this other one's so rough. <laughs> uh, I th- think that there's one. Oh, God, it's so rough. <laughs> it's like it's Christopher Columbus. Oh, saint or sinner or something. <laughs> and it starts off with this. I think it's just oh, a wonderful thing. Well, wonderful in a very uh, painful way is right. that. It starts off with an animation of, of and, and it's, it turns out it's animated by who, whomever, but it's narrated by the teacher who actually went through this. And it starts off, and there's this this schoolroom. The kids look like they're no more than maybe fourth grade or something like that. And so there's this young girl. She's at the, the head of the class, and the teacher's with her. And maybe let's say her name is Alice. She she sits down, and so. I don't know if he says we're going to do show and tell, whatever, but he walks over to her and he says, can I, can I see what's in your, your purse? And so she says, what? Yeah. Can I see what's in your purse? Uh, and she says, okay. So she opens up her purse and he sees this, this, uh, this, uh, this brush in there. He said, Oh, he said, that's my brush. And all the kids are like laughing. Ah, that's so funny. That's so funny. He's like, um, he says, no, no, that's my brush. Uh, and they said, no, it's not. It's my brush. And so he he takes the purse he takes the, the brush out of um out of the uh, the purse and he says this is my this is my brush he says, no, it's that's not a brush he said no I found it it's my brush what do you mean he says it was there I found it it's my brush <laughs> no it's mine it's been mine all the time and he said he said that's how I was explaining to them about Christopher Columbus. All the people were here in the Americas for years. The, 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 the indigenous people were here. Christopher Columbus came over and he saw this land and he said, this is mine. 
And so the people were there like, no, 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 this is ours. He's like, what are you talking about? And so he goes back to Spain and he says, Isabella, Ferdinand, I found this new world. It's, it's mine. Like, oh, that's great. That's great. Great. It's like, and those people are there. So he's saying, so in other words, I, and he was basically saying that I'm the one who's holding it. Yeah. So since I'm holding it, and quite frankly, I have more power than you, I claim it as mine. Right. And, and it's something Christopher Columbus. I don't remember that, but it's a documentary on, on this, the controversy about Christopher Columbus. And I just remember how, how I thought a great beginning that was to opening up a dialogue, not only to adults, but to kids and how they can relate to what happened, what could literally happen today and how it's explained in history books. Because yeah. in history books, we talk about Christopher Columbus or even a, a Vikings discovering the new world, regardless of the fact that on this new world, we talk about other people being there. Yeah. And we talk about Plymouth Rock and we talk about having Thanksgiving with who these Indians who are already there. And then that's where our world is. And it's crazy, but it's so, yeah. it's so a part of our history that's just accepted even in its overt discrimination. Yeah. You just go outside and try to run into a Native American today. It's going to be very, very difficult for you. Yeah. And I think what's, I mentioned this just the other day, what's interesting is that the, the sort of reparation that the Native American community wanted was given to them in the form of a reservation and then used as a prison. Yes. And so the irony of, hey, you're not going to take all of our land and, and we got it. And then they're like, well, we're going to put this casino boss over you. And then you're not going to be able to leave the reservation and you're not going to be able to use any of the resources this country uh, has. So good luck. And now yeah. there's rampant yeah. HIV and alcoholism and depression in those communities. And no one's paying attention. It's true. It's true. It's like how, how, how awful that people who, whose land this was first, mm -hmm. Finders keepers, losers weepers, but no, it's like finders keepers, but they have the strength, and now and now we're we're compartmentalizing you into this specific area, and that's where that's where you could keep to some degree onto your own heritage. Yeah, but yeah, once you come out here, you got to be like us. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's a that's a fitting place to yeah. draw this wonderful and, and wide ranging conversation to a close. Uh, Chris, this has been amazing as I knew it would be Thank for those you. listening. Uh, I hope you enjoyed it. Learn something. You can learn a lot more by going to chrishaleyspeaks.com and checking out all of his work uh, there and on social media. Of course, if you want to reach out to me, uh, or anyone on the team here at the Make It Podcast, you can do that at www.bonsai.film or find us on social at underscore Bonsai Creative or email us at contact at bonsai.film and we'll uh, get to you right away and uh, keep pumping out these wonderful conversations and in-depth conversations for you. Uh, Chris, uh, don't be a stranger. Sure. Best of luck on the work that's coming up this weekend and next weekend. And uh, we'll talk soon. I know we will. All right. Sounds good. Okay. Thank you, Chris. Be good, brother. Take care. Bye, buddy. Bye. You've been listening to the Make It Podcast. To find out more information about this week's topics, including links to relevant blog posts, projects, and indie creatives, please visit our website at www.bonsai.film. If you haven't already, you can join our podcast community 
on Apple Podcasts or the podcast app of your choice by searching for Make It Bonsai Creative and the show will pop right up. You now have the opportunity to support the production of this podcast. If you love Make It and are a true fan of what we're trying to accomplish in the indie film community, please visit www.bonsai.film and click Contribute. Contributions start at only $5 monthly. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at underscore Bonsai Creative and on Facebook by searching for Bonsai Creative. You can provide feedback to us via email at contact at bonsai.film and you can follow me, Chris, on Twitter at Flaming Your Heart. That's F-L-A-M-E-I-N-U-R-H-E-A-R-T. And of course, if you're looking to take a big step towards your filmmaking success, go to www.bonsai.film and click on services to explore a variety of offerings from keynotes and panels to pitch readiness assessments and so much more. You have everything to gain. Until next time, be better, be creative, be engaged, and thank you for listening.